Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Morning. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors at Salt Church. Uh, Great to be here doing church with you. Uh, We're thinking about greatness today. Greatness today. And I typed great Australians into Google to see who would come up. And these are some of the pictures that came up. See if you can recognize all of them. There they are, all nine of them. Did anybody get all nine? Show of hands if you think you got all nine. Oh, one person got all nine. Two, oh, you've got the answers in front of you. That doesn't count. Uh, just to satisfy your curiosity, here's their names. Don Bradman, famous cricketer. Kate Blanchett, Australia's probably leading female actress. Fred Hollows, ophthalmologist, did a lot of work in Australia and across the world. Eddie Marbo, uh, who fought for Aboriginal land rights. Kathy Freeman, famous Australian sprinter. Gough Whitlam, politician. Ash Barty was the Australian, I think she was the number one at one point, but she was the uh, one, the young Australian of the year in 2020. Uh, ben Robert Smith is a famous Australian soldier who won the Victoria Cross. And Edith Cohen, you might not recognize her, unless you're wealthy, then you'll see her on the $50 bills. Uh, she was the first member, the first female member of Australian Parliament. And she uh, did a lot to campaign for the right for women to vote. So she's on the $50 note to commemorate her. These are these people. Uh, these are all great Australians. And there's so many more, but here's a bunch of great Australians. But what is it that makes them great? There's a real mix here. There, there's sporting abilities, acting talents. Uh, there's political achievements. There's people who served their country and served other people. They're all great people. But what we're going to see in Matthew 11 and what we just heard from Jess is something surprising that Jesus says. He says that we can be as great, even greater than all of these men and women, which surely is a challenge to the way that you see the world. I mean, what Australian male is ever going to say, I'm greater than Don Bradman? Probably many Australian men because we all think we're above average at sport, but not Don Bradman. What Aussie man is going to say, I'm better than Eddie Marbo? What Australian woman is going to say, I'm greater than Edith Cowan or Kate Blanchett? But that's what Jesus says. And if we understand what he says, it's going to change the way we view ourselves, the way we view others, the way we view greatness. And the key is in verse 11. Have a look, it's coming up on the screen, but grab it in your Bible as well as we work our way through Matthew 11. The key is verse 11 where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We're going to unpack this verse in a series of questions. I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into these questions. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we look at your word now, you would speak to us. Help us to understand greatness the way that you define it and the way that you express it. We pray that you'd take away distractions from us. We pray that you'd protect people in this storm that's coming at the moment, Lord. Uh, we pray, Lord, for uh, that you take away distractions so that we can focus on what you have to say to us. Amen. Uh, unpack this verse with a series of questions. First question, who is John the Baptist? Who is John? Well, we met him back in Matthew chapter 3. 
Uh, he is basically the first century equivalent of Bear Grylls. He, he lives in the desert. He just hangs out there eating bugs. He lives on locusts. Uh, and he's there in the desert baptizing people, dunking them in the river to get them ready for Jesus. Because uh, before Jesus starts his ministry, John the Baptist is preparing all the people for Jesus. He, he's like the, the warm-up act at a comedy show, or he's like the, the support band at a concert. He's preparing the stage for Jesus to come, but he's preparing people's hearts for God. He's preparing the audience, their hearts, for God to come. Come have a look, Matthew chapter 3. Come with me. Flick back a couple of pages. Matthew chapter 3. Here's what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. He's there telling people to repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And repent means to turn to turn around, to turn away from sin and to turn to God. That's what he's telling people to do. And then Jesus comes and John the Baptist recognizes who he is. He recognizes that this is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited king of ancient Israel and he's here. And Jesus starts his ministry and he heals and he teaches and everybody's amazed. But by the time we get to John chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 11, John is having second thoughts about Jesus. Have a look at what he says. Come back to Matthew 11. See what he says in verse 2. Matthew 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, heard about the deeds of Jesus, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? See, he's questioning Jesus and he's saying, why? Sorry, I said that wrong. He's, uh, He's there. And he is wondering who Jesus is. And he's asking this question. He's starting to doubt who Jesus is. Why is it now though? Why does John question Jesus now? Why does he now doubt who Jesus is? Especially when you see Jesus' answer in verse 4. Have a look in verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. He's seeing these things. Jesus is healing and Jesus is teaching and Jesus is doing exactly what the Old Testament predicted that Jesus would do. This is what God said he would do when he sent his Messiah, when God sent his king. Uh, We read it in Isaiah 35. It'll come up on the screen. It says, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong Do not fear, your God will come. He will come, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. This is what Jesus is doing. What was predicted about the Messiah, Jesus is doing it all. So why is John doubting? Because of the missing words. I took some words out of this. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. It's the same thing John the Baptist says. Come back to Matthew 3. Doing flicking between 3 and 11 today. Here's what it says, verse 11, Matthew 3, verse 11. 
This is John's message. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Do you see what John is here expecting? He's expecting that bit. The vengeance, the judgment, the divine retribution. Because when the king comes, he comes to judge the enemies of God. So if Jesus is this king, how come evil people are getting away with it still? In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison when he sends his disciples to Jesus. So he's there in prison, even though he's a follower of God, even though he's serving God. How can he be in prison if Jesus is here? You can understand his confusion, can't you? Actually, there's more Old Testament predictions of what will happen when the king comes. Basically, there's two pictures of what the Old Testament prophesies about Jesus. It prophesies a conquering king. A king who will rule over sickness and death and the enemies of God. And it predicts a suffering servant. A servant who will suffer for God's people to deal with their sin. And Jesus is both of these pictures combined. Most people in the Old Testament didn't combine these. They saw these as two different people. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. He sees them as two different people. But Jesus is the king and the servant in this one person. John the Baptist didn't combine it. And until we do, it's really hard to make sense of Jesus. Because the pattern of Jesus' life is suffering and glory. It's suffering that leads to glory. And being a disciple of Jesus means imitating that pattern. That's what we're called to as Christians. Being a disciple of Jesus means imitating Jesus' pattern of life. We're called to suffer with Jesus and then to share in his glory. Uh, Sometimes when I'm describing the Christian life to people who aren't Christians, uh, I'm really tempted to just do a bit of a bait and a switch, you know, just to promise that picture one is what the Christian life looks like, but to leave out picture number two. I want to say to you, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're exploring Christianity, I want to be honest about the difficulties. It's suffering and then glory, which may not sound very appealing, Uh, Most people try and avoid suffering at all costs these days. We want glory now, immediately. But that's kind of not really how the world works. I mean, if you think about those great Australians, they achieve success. How? Through pain. None of them achieve success without pain. That's how the world works. Suffering and then glory is just how things tick. But come back to John. John has doubts about Jesus, but Jesus has no doubt about John. Look what he says back in verse 11. He says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now let me kind of put this in perspective about how great John the Baptist is. If you got all the heroes of the Old Testament, you got Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Hannah, Samson, David, Elijah, kind of ancient Israel's Google search of the greatest Jews of all time. If you got all of these people together, Jesus says that John the Baptist is greater than all of them. 
He is greater than all of them. On what basis is he greater? Is he more godly? Is he more of a hero? He's like Bear Grylls. Does he just have a stronger stomach than all the rest of them? What basis is he greater? Well, here's the key about John. All the Old Testament hero, all the Old Testament heroes look forward to Jesus. They're all looking forward to Jesus to come. But John the Baptist is greater because he's here when Jesus arrives. That's what makes him greater. He's greater because he is the last in a long line of men and women who prepared for Jesus' coming. He's greater because he has the special privilege of being the one who gets to announce that Jesus is here. That's why he's the greatest. But then Jesus immediately says this in verse 11. He says, Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How can we be greater than John the Baptist? Because no offense, but as I look out this morning, we're pretty ordinary people. We're all pretty ordinary people. It's obvious why these people are great. It's obvious why these people are great Australians. It's going to come on any second. There it is. It's obvious why these people are great because they've achieved so much in their own different spheres. They've all achieved something impressive. But Jesus says to us that you can be greater than these people. We can be greater than them, greater than Moses and David and Sarah and John the Baptist. And in fact, most of us in this room already are greater. How? Well, according to Jesus, true greatness is to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the message that John the Baptist has and Jesus has. They say, repent, turn around, turn away from sin, turn to God, because the kingdom of God is near. Entering the kingdom of God means living as one of God's people and not as God's enemies. Entering the kingdom of God means having the joy of life with God now and the glory of heaven ahead. True greatness is entering the kingdom of God. So how do we become one of the great ones? How do we do that? How do we become greater than John the Baptist, greater than Don and Kate and Marbo? How do you get in? Well, Jesus gives us two ways not to get in. That's where he goes next. After Jesus sends John's disciples away, he starts talking about people who are dissatisfied. Here's what he says. Come to Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. He says, To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Jesus is describing here people who complain no matter what you give them. Uh, They complain about John the Baptist that he was too extreme, hanging out in the desert, preaching judgment, Jesus coming, he's way too extreme. But Jesus, Jesus is too frivolous. John the Baptist, he never partied. Jesus went to too many parties. These are people that you just can't satisfy. But they haven't engaged with John or Jesus' teaching. They're like kids who are dissatisfied no matter what you give them. They're spectators who criticize from the sidelines. And sadly, there's people like this today, aren't there? 
Some people seem to be exploring Jesus. And they ask great questions and they talk the questions through with Christians. But no matter how many answers they get, they're not satisfied. No matter how many answers they get, they don't trust in Jesus. Because they're not really looking for answers. They're looking to have arguments. The same thing can happen with Christian love. Some people receive all this practical care from Christians and they are still dissatisfied. I remember a friend of mine named Sam is a pastor at a church in Newcastle. Uh, and he, this one time, a, a lady who lived across the street from where his church met uh, asked if he and the church could help her move house. And he thought, brilliant, what a great opportunity. We can love this lady. We can, you know, help the community see that Christians care. So he took up this offer. He got a bunch of guys from the church to get together and help out this lady. They spent a full day moving and lifting and carrying stuff. Uh, They even set up her furniture. They helped her unpack. And at the end of the day, the lady closed the door in their face. She didn't even say thank you. Some people are dissatisfied no matter what you do for them. And dissatisfaction and grumbling at God has always been one of the most dangerous sins for ancient Israel. We need to make sure that it doesn't let us disqualify from eternal life. We need to make sure that complaining doesn't stop you from entering the kingdom of God and experiencing true greatness. Jesus also talks about people who are disinterested. Look in verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are towns that Jesus has been to recently. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. What's he saying here? Again, these are spectators who watch the action from the sidelines. They're happy to see all the action, but they're not interested in them. They're not interested when it comes to their own personal repentance. And some people are like this today. Some people criticize Christianity without ever trying to understand it. Some people try church a few times and they, they conclude, I just didn't really get anything out of it. Both of those people have failed to take Jesus' teaching to heart. If you come to church and hear Jesus teach, you're in a position of privilege and of danger. Right now, as we're hearing the teaching of Jesus, we're in a position of privilege and of danger. Of privilege because there's nothing more precious than hearing the words of the Son of God so you can know and love Him. But danger... If you don't take it to heart, danger if you hear it and you don't repent and turn back. And the danger is that when Jesus returns to judge the world, you won't have an excuse. I mean, imagine standing before Jesus on that day when he returns to judge the world and saying to Jesus, look, I'm sorry, but I just didn't really get rounds to checking you out and taking you seriously. I I just was busy with other things. And imagine Jesus saying, I died for you, and you were too busy to take me seriously? Imagine saying, look, church, I went a couple of times, but it was never really my thing. And imagine Jesus saying, I died to create the church with my own blood, and you were not interested? 
dissatisfied people and disinterested people don't enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do you get in? Well, you need to be chosen by God. That's what Jesus says next in verse 25. Have a look, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Entry to the kingdom of God, peace with God, it doesn't require an intelligence test. Uh, It's not the clever people that get into heaven. Some of the least clever people get the good news that Jesus forgives your sin if you trust in him. If you trust him as the saving king, you'll be forgiven by God. Some of the least clever people in the world get that truth. And some of the most clever don't understand it. It doesn't require an intelligence test and it doesn't require our culture's definition of greatness. You're rising above others by outperforming them, doing more good than them. In the end, entry comes by God choosing who he's going to show himself to. God choosing who he's going to reveal himself to. Look at verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's up to Jesus who he will reveal the Father to. So that leads up to a pretty obvious question. How do you become one of these chosen people? How do you become one of the elect people of God? Well, that's where Jesus goes next in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, how you enter the kingdom is that you come to Jesus. These two things fit together. You're chosen by God, and so you come to Jesus. That's how you know that you're one of God's people. At the end of the day, though, I think often as Christians, we wonder, am I one of God's people? Am I chosen? Am I elect? And at the end of the day, we don't have to wonder whether God has chosen us. If you come to Jesus, then you're one of God's chosen people. Jesus says, come to me, and everyone who does is a chosen person of God. Uh, I think becoming a Christian is a little bit like approaching a door. Uh, It's a little bit like coming to a door. On the front of the door is a sign with Jesus' invite. Come, choose life through Jesus. And so you take that invitation, you choose life in Jesus, you decide to trust Jesus as your saving king, and you walk through the door. But when you go through the door, you turn around and you see a sign on the back of the door, and it says, chosen by God from before creation. God has chosen you, and so you can come through the door. And as you come to Jesus, as you come through the door, that shows that you've been chosen. And the promise that Jesus makes to those who choose him, to those who come to him, to those who have been chosen, is rest. The promise Jesus gives here is rest for our souls. Uh, Not the rest of like an endless holiday. The rest from labor of trying to seek peace with God. The rest from trying to earn heaven by doing good enough. The rest from the the guilt, the penalty, the consequences of our sin. Instead of trying to find 
our peace and our safety and our security on our own. We get it from God. Instead of trying to find our life's purpose among the smorgasbord of options that our culture gives us, uh, instead of looking at your achievements to prove to yourself and to prove to other people that you matter, instead of all of that and the weariness and the burden that it brings, Jesus gives rest for our souls. Uh, a guy named John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress in 1677. And it's a, it's a metaphor, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And the main character is a man named Christian. And he has this crushing burden on his shoulders of his sin and his failure. And he's trying to work out how does he get rid of it. And so he goes on this journey to try and work out how to get rid of this crushing burden that he has on him. And as he's journeying, all the people that he meets give him their opinion about how to get rid of this burden. But all it does is increase his burden. Until finally he arrives at the cross And he puts it down at the foot of Jesus. That is a great picture of the rest that Jesus gives us. And that is true greatness. For some of us here, we may have been among the dissatisfied, the disinterested. And we've heard the message of Jesus today. But we haven't done anything about it before. Before now, we've heard the message, but we haven't done anything with it. And you've heard the words to Jesus today and you've realized you need to get serious about him. You don't want to stand before Jesus on that last day with nothing to say for yourself. Jesus' invitation is for you today. Come to me and I will give you rest. That's his promise. Why not take up that offer today? It's pretty easy. You do it by coming to Jesus. You do it by asking Jesus to forgive you. Asking him to be your saviour and your king. That's all it is. Though for many of us here, though, we are part of the kingdom of God and we have taken Jesus' invitation and we've come. The challenge for us is to let Jesus' view of greatness impact our view. To change the way that we view greatness, to change the way we view ourselves. Because we live in a culture where greatness is found in what you do. Whether that's on the sporting field, whether that's in battle, whether that's in politics or in movies or in medicine, you're great based on what you do and we rank people based on what they do. But Jesus says the least in the kingdom of God is greater than all of those who are not in the kingdom. And all these people who do so much amazing things, they are great people. We should give thanks to God for all the great things that they've done. But Jesus says... The least in the kingdom of God is greater than all of those who are not in the kingdom because entering the kingdom of God is what matters most. And once you're in the kingdom, true greatness is found in serving the king. Look at this last bit, verse 29. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Greatness is entering the kingdom and it's serving the king. Because did you notice here, it says Jesus takes our burden and then he gives us another one. He puts his yoke on us. Uh, Yoke is, you know, the oxen in the field plowing. They've got the yoke on them, plowing up the, the field. The choice Jesus gives is not a heavy burden or no burden. The choice is a heavy burden or his burden. Jesus doesn't save us from serving ourselves to keep serving ourselves. 
He saves us to serve him. And as we do that, it's easy and light in comparison because Jesus is gentle and he's humble and he's good. And I've got to be honest, I often find that this is not my experience. The words that he uses here, easy, light, rest. I often find that it's not my experience because being a Christian is hard. It's hard work. Uh, Being a Christian makes me care about people and people are hard work. Being a Christian makes me take responsibility that I wouldn't otherwise. I have less sleep. I have more stress. I have more suffering. I have more burdens because I'm a Christian. And we're told, of course, suffering now, glory to come. That is what we're meant to expect. But we're also told that we'll find rest in Jesus. And that isn't always my experience. Usually, though, what I find is that when I feel burdened and wearied, It's usually because of something I've done. It's usually because I've put burdens on my shoulders and responsibilities on my shoulders that Jesus never asked me to bear. Uh, I feel burdened not when I serve Jesus, but when I try and be Jesus. That's usually the cause of my burden. When I serve in my own strength instead of casting my cares on God and serving in Christ's strength. When I try and be a savior, that's when I feel burdened. Of course, that's going to make me weary though, isn't it? The job of Savior has already been filled by Jesus and he is much better at it than any of us will ever be. True greatness is entering the kingdom of God through Jesus and serving King Jesus. True greatness is found in knowing Jesus and serving Jesus. And since that's where true greatness is found, it needs to reshape us. It needs to reshape your ambition. As people look at you, Will they recognize that Jesus has reshaped your values, your goals, your ambitions if you're a Christian? If you're a Christian, is the goal in your life to succeed at what you're doing, to outdo others, or is the goal of your life to serve your king? It might mean you succeed in life and outdo others, but what's your goal? What's the thing you're aiming at? Is the goal in your life to serve your king? Would your kids say that about you if you have kids? as they look at you and as they look at the life that you live? Would they say that the goal of your life is to serve your king? Or is another one, it needs to reshape the way that we view other people. Do you evaluate people based on our culture's criteria or based on Jesus' criteria? Would people see that your greatest desire for them is not for them to become great at what they do, but that they would know and serve Jesus too? Is that your greatest desire for people? Is that what your kids would say? Is that what you most want for your kids if you have them? Not that they become great in this world or great at what they do, but that they know and serve Jesus and they're great at that. So if we come to Jesus, we have a double privilege. We're part of his kingdom and we get to do the greatest activity on the planet. We get to serve our good king. That's what we're made for. That's what we're saved for. And entering the kingdom of God through Jesus and serving Jesus is true rest. It is true greatness. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father God, please help all of us to believe this. Thank you for what you've shown us. Thank you for the path to true greatness that comes through Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would live it, that we would serve Jesus all our days. Amen.